Welcome to the first episode of this podcast. We are four engineers who love animation. Uh, we don't have professional backgrounds in art and animation, but we've all dabbled at one point or another. Uh, and what we're doing here, the main purpose, is to learn about basic animation principles and eventually get to more complex principles and to convey that information in a very consumable way for you all. Uh, so I'm Ken. I am a developer. I love animation. I deal mostly with 3D animation. Uh, I work with a lot of 3D artists and animators. And I'm glad, glad you're listening. Um, you know what I realized? This is like the first principle of animation. So we're going to have like a 12 part series in each principle of animation. Is that plan? Potentially. But uh, we figured we could start with one. I don't know if I'm going to edit this out. I think it's very important for I think us to understand that we don't understand the, where this <laughs> will eventually go. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I'm Sophie. <laughs> and I work, um, my work is unrelated to animation, but um, I, th- I took an animation course um, one summer at uh, DigiPen. And I learned about 3D animation. Uh, I have also done graphics from kind of the math perspective, but um, I did it more like from the art perspective using, I don't remember, is it 3DX Max, 3DS Max, whatever whatever the program's called. Um, I don't know. I made a melting clock, and that was cool. Yeah, my name is Lachlan. Um, I am also an engineer. Um, but before I was a, a software guy, I used to animate with Flash as, as a wee uh, 12 to 17-year-old. And uh, in fact, my first job was was the highest form of animation, uh, internet banner ads. Back back when that was a thing. Um, but yeah, um, I'm yeah. Are you talking with an American accent? That's that's my that's my radio voice. Oh. <laughs> no, I was I wasn't I wasn't thinking about which accent to use. That's what came out. <laughs> I could I could do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we're gonna keep that. Uh, Hi, my name's Cooper. I'm the fourth engineer. Uh, I am a avid cartoon watcher and I love 2D art. I draw, do pixel art, and uh, just learn a lot about the history of everything uh, related to 2D animation. So going forward, uh, what we're going to do is we're probably going to go through the 12 principles of animation first. Um, They're bedrock. They're there for a reason. They're very important. So the first one we're going to talk about uh, today is squash and stretch. Uh, Cooper, as the the today's historian and maybe future permanent historian, (laughs) what can you tell us about squash and stretch? Well, Swash and Stretch is actually the first of the 12 principles of animation. Um, These principles of animation came around uh, back when they were first thinking about how they were going to describe and uh, predict what these cartoons would do. And so uh, animators would try to come up with a language to be able to describe how things move, their motion, and what principles uh, they use to guide a character or objects in their scene, and to be able to compare it and make it predictable across animators and across brands, they came up with these principles. So uh, by kind of making it a standard, so you, so in engineering speak, what you're saying is this became a standard, um, but a standard that was across the entire industry, kind of like if I'm going to be uh, modern, OpenXR, uh, which is a new VR standard that's coming out, coming soon. Y'all are going to love it. <laughs> 
I'm not chilling. I'm just passionate about it. Just like I'm passionate about animation. I'm trying to draw a parallel. Yes. And so the Disney animators, when they were very early on, when uh, the Disney animators early on um, kind of used these principles to guide all of their animation. So they made it a standard. This is the famous standard that a lot of other animators have been using uh, for almost a century now. And so... Uh, this was uh, made popular in Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas's animation book, The Ill- uh, Illusion of Life, Disney Animation. And so this is known as like the Bible um, of animation, especially for two dimensions. So these Disney animators actually said that squash and stretch was the most important principle of the 12. Mm. Yes. You know why? Uh, it's mainly because of how important that is to setting up a lot of the other animations as well as uh, for that brand um, and understanding and making it predictable, squash and, squ- squash and stretch is a very important part of that. You know, one of the things that I've always sort of noticed in animation, part of what makes me love it is sort of that, that bombastic nature of Polycarpus move and um, squash and stretch probably contributes the most to it. Uh, I, that's for sure. After learning about it, like, oof. I, I can never unsee it. <laughs> um, I think we've given a lot of background on Squash and Stretch, but we haven't explained to our dear listener who probably knows us, and that's why they're listening to this podcast, um, <laughs> what exactly Squash and Stretch is. So Squash and Stretch is the principle that animated objects will get longer or flatter to emphasize their speed, momentum, weight, mass, and other characteristics. Um, to put this in layman's terms, uh, objects uh, will be able to move, bounce, squeeze and do other things uh and in our normal life and environment we understand how those physics work however as an audience member in an animation we don't know how that works until it's described to us and squash and stretch allows us to describe objects as well as characters in that environment cool yeah just so um if i want to set up a little visualization for you guys if you can imagine a bouncing ball um kind of Imagine it's in your hand and you drop it. As it's falling, it's sort of getting longer. It kind of shows its acceleration. It's stretching. And then uh, kind of when it's in the middle of its fall, it's almost just round. I don't know how to describe whatever. And then it's... <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Basically, the initial drop shows that stretch primarily to show the intended action and what the action is actually doing. Um, I imagine that might also be used to save frames and how many frames you actually need to draw, right? Because like if you're showing like an elongated ball, oh. you don't necessarily have to draw all the frames of the ball going to that position, but it's, it's showing the intent. It's showing that bombastic nature of the ball and what it's actually doing, which is falling at a very quick rate. And then it falls to the ground. And as it falls to the ground, it starts to squash, primarily because you know that impact is happening. And how much it squashes reflects how much the impact is. So imagine Wiley e. Coyote running, following that dang roadrunner, and then he runs right off a cliff like a darn goofus. He goes, he looks at you, he raises up a sign that says, oh shit, or some sort of variation, probably more attuned to children. And he starts to fall. But as he falls, the bottom starts to fall first, and it just drops. And his neck is the only thing, his neck and the head is the only thing left, because it's meant to show his sort of despair at the idea that he's going to fall very quickly. So uh, it follows through, and you see the wily coyote fall to the ground, and as he does, he falls flat flat on the ground, and he expands outwards, because he, or becomes flat, um, but point being is that the intended motion is described, and I didn't mean to take that over from you, but you 
also. That's why I lost it. Uh, you, it's cool. Yeah. It's, it, okay, it's A-OK. I'm going to say it's, it's a very fundamental effect that, that is able to give, give heft and weight to objects in the scene and make them feel like real objects that have real physics and real impacts on the things around them. And it is, it's not something you will consciously notice if it's not there, but you will feel a bit uneasy. And if you compare, if you compare, say, the old Simpsons intro to the new Simpsons intro, um, the new one, the old, the old one was animated frame by frame with heavy use of squash and stretch and smearing. And the new one is, I don't know what it was made of, maybe, but yeah. New one is much far more stiff and rigid, and if you if you if you watch it and you feel like it's soulless, that is the reason why. So um, I feel like the one thing that you kind of touched on is we talked about squash and stretch, kind of in terms of, of motion and physics and showing that. But seems like one thing we also keep kind of touching on is the use of squash and stretch to show emotion or soul or like liveliness. Yep, exactly. Uh, so. Um, a lot of the squash and stretch actually feeds into another principle uh, called anticipation. And with that principle, uh, it actually kind of gives an extra characteristic to either a movement, to an object, or to a character. And a lot of times that happens on the face. And so one of the most famous scenes in terms of both squash, squash and stretch, as well as anticipation, um, is something like winding up a baseball throw or winding up a punch. Um, and that is deemed as something very classic. Uh, another way in which squash and stretch is used in terms of emotion uh, is in the Grinch. And so when you see the Grinch smile, his mischievous smile, you know that his smile stretches and he uh, conveys the emotion in his face without having to say anything. And as his hair on the top curls out and stretches out, it just adds to the effect. And so these this principle can display emotion as well as uh, give an idea as to the characteristics of a person without or an object without having to say it. Cooper's really keeping this on the rails. Well, so uh, this becomes a little bit harder when it translates to 3D animation, right? Because 2D animation, while being a complex task in terms of like sort of conveying the sense of heft, volume, motion, intent, uh, it can go very wrong with 3D. Uh, so when you see this in 3D, a lot of the things that I would, I, well, one of the things I would keep in mind is that it's harder to do. And so if it looks slightly off, it's not because the artist was necessarily incompetent, but... Many, many, many things in animation, if they are slightly off, will look completely wrong. Um, these, these things include hands, faces, uh, body proportions... And natural phenomena such as fire and water, or bad rotoscope. So, for instance, bad rotoscoping in animation, um, while trying to convey um, sort of intent and like just be an easier way to draw motion, it will lack a lot of squash and stretch. It'll lack those principles that we've kind of been accustomed to as we grow up, and we we continue to watch animation and we grow and we we consume more and more animation. Up until around 15, and we're like, well, animation's for losers, but that's an aside. Um, Not Rick and Morty. <laughs> well, only intellectuals like Rick and Morty. But um, the thing about this is that 
Um, we're kind of attuned to expect squash and stretch. So when we see it and we see fluid motion without that sort of like intent behind it, or rather anticipation that um, comes as a byproduct of squash and stretch, we're kind of concerned by it, right? It, it's sort of, um, it reaches that sort of uncanny valley level because we are kind of programmed to expect these sort of principles in animation. Yeah, I think we should talk about the uncanny valley. I think that touched on what Lachlan was talking about in terms of a person looks weird that we we automatically because we know exactly what humans should look like right um, mm. it, so as soon as something looks a little bit off or we find it very disturbing mm-hmm. and sometimes it's used on purpose to give an effect but when it's done incorrectly it gets in this weird like you said uncanny valley where they tr- they're trying too hard and it just doesn't work mm-hmm. 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 so uh historian do you have any more history for us Um, well, I think you touched on the fact that uh, as we moved into three dimensions, it became a little bit harder to get the proportions correct. Um, and this is evident of how the principles were first created. Uh, it was in a 2D setting where they first drew and understood and designed these things using two-dimensional photographs and then eventually applied those characteristics and those principles to 3D. And we can see in some aspects they're still working on having these principles being applied to 3D uh, be more standardized and done correctly through a lot of these uh, mm-hmm. um, shows, movies, and other places. So, so uh, for instance, I've actually, this made me think about Ruby. So if you've all seen Ruby, it's Rooster Teeth's uh, like 3D approach to anime. The first season looks really off, um, just animation-wise. Like, it looks off because like uh, the, the animation team behind it was fresh, was new at this um, to an extent. They, they had worked on Red versus Blue for a while, but this is something completely different. It was uh, with a new art style. It wasn't using some sort of in-game engine. Um, they didn't have access to any tech that um, they previously had, so I think they actually had to spin up their own like tech stack for it. But what kind of seems off about it is that they didn't really take any of the squash and stretch sort of animation principles and apply to it, because prior to that, all they had done is... Uh, Machinima, right? So they they had taken in-game sort of engines and used that for videos. So taking their first property and actually applying principles of animation to it um, without sort of like the the context of having done it prior in a 3D context made things feel a little little robotic, a little unnatural. Um, I swear I have a point to this. So as they continued, and they continued making the series and they continued expanding it, you could see the characters becoming more and more expressive because... um, from that, they actually created more series. They had more in-house uh, animation teams uh, develop tech, and they realized that they could actually start applying more of these animation principles to it. So the characters get more and more expressive as time goes on. Um, but I guess my point with this is that it, it's a real, it's a real process. Uh, I, I think with 3D, a lot you are constrained by the technology as well, mm-hmm. um, especially with like frame-by-frame animation. You are not constrained by what you would typically be constrained by in, in 3D animation, which is like meshes and bones and mm-hmm. having to animate through that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, definitely meshes. So like the thing about like animating meshes uh, is that sometimes the animations will not combine in the way that you expect them to. In fact, they may um, 
cause each other to interact negatively. So, for instance, I work with a lot of, uh, well, I have worked with a lot of character animators, uh, and we did a lot of animation and characters, and sometimes these additive animations, basically different layers of animations that were supposed to be animating different things, would interact in odd ways if uh, not properly addressed. And some things that you need to consider, like when animating something in a game engine, is what are the limitations on that particular engine for the actual animation file that your artist spent so much time putting effort into? Um, is it going to properly be a one-to-one? Or is it going to try to be optimized and reduce some things? And you're going to have to like start searching as to why your character now looks a bit lifeless compared to what you see on uh, Maya or 3DS Max. Um, anyway, that's an aside because I I had encountered that a bit. One. Uh, anyway, so we have some examples, right? Are we going to go to yeah. this? Is the example portion? Yes, so, we can um, do that. so for future reference listeners, this is the way that we're going to be at least trying to address the. Uh, 12 fundamentals of animation, uh, or the 12, let's just call them the 12. And well, it'll be ominous, you don't know what the 12 mean. It could be 12 people, the it could be man. the 12th man, it could be, well, we're all in Seattle, so it's very possible, but, um, don't stalk us. we're gonna, I don't, I personally don't care, I, I know karate, <laughs> enjoy, enjoy that stalking, because, you know, I, I love a good hunt, anyway. <laughs> So all of our episodes will be in the following format. Uh, we'll have basically a history lesson. We'll talk about how it's applied, where it's applied, what particular different mediums it's applied in, and then we'll be giving examples. Uh, so we're actually going into our example portion right now, and we all have some examples. I think, Cooper, you have the most fundamental example, the, the best example, if I if I may be so bold. Ouch. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, well, I'm actually going to do two One's going to be a very basic one that anyone who has seen a Pixar movie will be able to relate to. Uh, the very first principle of Splash and Stretch is perfectly animated in Pixar's opening scene where there's a lamp that jumps across and bounces on the eye. So as an audience member, you don't know what that eye's characteristics are until that lamp jumps up. Is it going to shatter? Is it going to stay there and do nothing? Or is it going to bounce? And of course, for everyone who's watched it, they've seen it bounce. Bounce a few times and then squashes it. And so that's a very good indication, an example of squash and stretch at its core. I feel like you kind of like, you imagine the material for the eye is like rubber just by seeing, just by its, the way it squashes and stretches. Exactly. Like you, like we mentioned before in the history, uh, the squash and stretch really explains the characteristics of the object. So think of the spectrum of like, well, what's a bouncing ball? Is it a water balloon or is it a cannonball or bowling ball? Mm -hmm. And so all squash and stretch allows you to kind of characterize that mm -hmm. object or set of objects in mm -hmm. the environment. Or even the squash and stretch of, uh, you can you can infer the characteristics of an object by how they affect other objects and the squash and stretch nature of other objects. Like, for instance, with the cannonball, well, that's not going to stretch, but the things around it will probably stretch or squash in some way, right? So, like, for instance... In, if you hit a cannonball with a brick, uh, sorry, if you hit a brick wall with a cannonball, um, the brick wall might squash and likely will squash, um, and there will be dust and debris. But you'll see the impact and sort of the way that the wall moves. It'll be inwards. It'll it'll squash. Yep. Or it might bounce back. 
uh, depending on the characteristics of the wall. Yeah, it might be a rubber wall. Yep. And so all like these things, wall. exactly. <laughs> or like in uh, Wild E. Coyote, this happens all the time with Roadrunner <laughs> and the paintings on the walls <laughs> and no. the stones. And so uh, this allows you to characterize things more in animation in an environment that you're just not sure of. <laughs> so another example of squash and stretch uh, is an old cartoon, uh, Tex Avery's Red Hot Riding Hood. Yeah. I yeah. felt things when I saw Red Hot Riding Hood in action, and I wasn't proud of them. Most people did. They uh, In theaters, they actually told them to uh, play it again because of how racy it was at the time. So, oh, okay, so to play it again, but also, like, could you get us some popcorn back so we can hide our awkward bonus? Well, maybe, but... <laughs> I'm sure they all had coats back then, so they wouldn't have to. You sure. Know, it, it was a thing in the forties. Bringing your coats. To zoot, the zoot suits. Their zoot suits. They yeah. They they folded up the the suit coats of their zoot suits and hid their awkward bonus. But then they told the attendant, "Play that dang shit again." Continue though. So, what what makes Red Hot Riding Hood such a great example of squash and stretch? Well, when I was growing up, I would see all of these teasers and cartoons on Cartoon Network, and one of the most famous ones was a wolf. Popping his eyes open and uh, having him stretch, and then his pupils pop out. And so that's something that, when someone describes uh, squash and stretch, always uh, stuck to me. That was always the example that I had, and that's actually from this cartoon. And so uh, throughout the cartoon, in the short, uh, they use squash and stretch, squash and stretch in varying different ways, all the way from using it to convey emotion in their face as well as emotion in general without using words like we described before. Uh, when it's whistling, when he's stretching, when he's becoming erect and staring at her. Um, all these things... <laughs> yes. All these things convey the emotions of the wolf as he's looking at this red-hot riding hood on the stage. And he's um, getting hot and heavy. Yeah, you would say so, yes. Yeah, and then he's like, well, okay, I'm going to... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm going to get to Grandma's before she does, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna kill that old lady, and then I'm gonna fuck her granddaughter. Not quite, but yes, it, it, it's similar to the old uh, red, mm -hmm. Little Red Riding Hood, where he goes to Grandma's house. I'm suddenly very uncomfortable with this after thinking about the connotations of that. Except the Grandma's hot for wolf. Yeah, the Grandma is hot for wolf. Yes, yes. But imagine yes. a version where he was successful in the murder. Uh, yeah, that would be a little bit darker. Yeah. That'd be more like of a grim fairy tale type of situation. <laughs> yeah. But, yes. Anyway, continue with your description. So, throughout the entire animation, uh, they use it for conveying speed, both in pulling her off the stage so that he can talk to her, so the wolf can quickly get Little Red Riding Hood um, in his table, as well as when she leaves to go to Grandma's house, speeding away in the car. And so they use the squash and stretch as a means to be able to say he is traveling very fast in his car, as well as uh, having an abrupt stop as he pulls up to the end house. Yeah, I know. I, I, we all kind of like when we were. So that sounded like a bunch of uh, words that shouldn't be put together in a sentence. But prior to this, we all watched examples of. Uh, well, examples of squash and stretch. We all watched what we had put up as being a good example. Um, so we watched this, and so for the listener at home, how they conveyed with the car was it was a very long car. So imagine, um, imagine like a '40s roadster, but then make it three times long in terms of the engine block, 
So it was like this very long car, maybe like three people long, if that, like if they were to lie down on the ground, head to toe. It's like um, a stretch limo. Like a stretch, wow, that's a really good way to put it. It's like a stretch limo. And a squash limo. And a squash limo, because as soon as he stops, he's stopping with such force that the rest of the car, the back where he is driving from, just squashes the front of the car and it becomes just the length of a normal car. Yep, and it conveys how quickly he stopped mm-hmm. in that moment. Because he is, he is hot for red hot. Correct. Yeah. And so this is a very good example of it used in 2D animation. Mm-hmm. But these same principles can be used both in two dimensions and three dimensions. And I think Lachlan has a good example of that. Yeah, the magic carpet from Aladdin is a really good example of how to take a completely inanimate object and almost entirely through squash and stretch express a wide range of emotions. It, it can be re- really be seen in the, the scene where it first appears where... They're in, they're in the Cave of Wonders, and the, the carpet starts off playful and then goes from, goes from playful to scared, and then scared to dejected, and then dejected to triumphant, all in the span of about a minute and a half. And this is expressed purely through... The, the carpet's body language, which is squashing and stretching of a inanimate rug. So what do you think, like, how... Um, so how do you think that squash and stretch is used to actually convey these specific emotions? I mean, are, is the part of the purchase of the carpet squashing and stretching in a way that human face or body would be doing so? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of it is an analog to exag- it's, it's, it's exaggerated forms of what we would cons- of, of poses people would make or poses that represent these emotions. So when it's, when, it, when it's sad and dejected, it's hunched over, it's making itself small, and it's moving away from us. And when it's triumphant, it's, it, it's throwing its, its tassels as, as wide as possible and moving around very quickly. Well, I mean, I feel like, um, like squash and stretch in general, it seems like it's usually applied more um, liberally to inanimate objects. Um, part of the reason being, as we talked about, is you can get in some uncanny valley territory uh, when you are trying to animate humans. Um, but I feel like part of that is also gives like life to inanimate objects, right? It makes inanimate objects like appear human, which, which is weird, right? That just like. Squash and stretch, it's not like humans don't squash and stretch. So it's, I'm thinking about the nuance of why these kind that of problems make squash and stretch. <laughs> I used to squash and stretch all the time. <laughs> if you ever see a slow motion punch to the face, your face squashes and stretches. It's just not as much as, say, a water balloon does oh, in yeah. real time. But so, like animation, what the, the tendency in animation is to exaggerate what's already present. Exactly. So, but continue, Sophie. We, we interrupted. And so. Please. No, I mean, you guys kind of tripped on what I was saying. I mean, it was just that, um, I mean, like we described how humans do squash and stretch, but it's interesting that this principle is what makes objects seem human. And I'm wondering what it is about it, or if it's just a pattern that we've seen that we've started to associate towards kind of um, you know, something more that personifies them. Yeah, the expression behind it, where it kind of, different objects have different expressions. Uh, your example actually was really good with this, um, right? So the, the Little Witch Academia opening, too. Mm-hmm. So would you like to talk about that? 
Yeah, I can talk a bit about it. It's funny because I misremembered it. I mean, um, Little Witch Academia and a lot of um, Studio Trigger's works do use clutch and stretch animation. Uh, we talked about how um, most anime does not, but Trigger was, is heavily influenced by um, by Western animation. So uh, we watched the opening, and uh, actually the characters were, I don't want to say stiff, but... Um, Squatch and Stretch wasn't really used for the characters, but it was used a lot for the inanimate objects. For example, the witches' hats and the wands. And um, I feel like that actually gave those objects kind of a lot of personality and a lot of almost weight in the, in the intro. Mm-hmm. Because like in the show, when you actually watch them in the show and they bring out their wand, like unlike in Harry Potter the movie, where they bring out a wand and it's kind of unwavering, it's just a stick. It's almost disjointed with the, with the rest of the it, it is, it is, because like you bring it up and it kind of whips out and it starts to bend in ways that you wouldn't expect this metal wand to bend. But it, they do it in such a way that it conveys an emotion, like it conveys sort of like the quickness at which the wand is moving out. It's giving it a characterization of being quick. It's like, it's like a flare. Or even an ex- flare <laughs> or even an extension of them as humans, right? Because oh, yeah. because it personifies them. So in Harry Potter, I feel like the wand is almost cold and disjointed against them. In mm-hmm. Little Witch Academia, it's almost like an extension of their own bodies, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so actually, Lachlan, you had an example of bad squashing. <laughs> so bad. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, I can't believe that movie was made in 2012. I'm just going to preface it with that because I was shocked. There was a famous, or should I say infamous, uh, 3D animated audiovisual extravaganza known as Food Fights, starring Charlie Sheen as an animated dog, uh, released in 2012. This is, um, it has an interesting history, actually, because the, the hard drive containing the movie was stolen during production. And so the final product was scraped together from what they had, as far as I understand. And they were originally going for a squash and stretch style reminiscent of Looney Tunes um, and ended up with some kind of weird, uncanny 3D mishmash um, half, half completed using terrible, terrible motion capture. Um, and you can see, you can see the, the worst of the worst is with the character, what was his name? Che- Cheezle T. Weasel. <laughs> Cheezle T. Weasel. Um, Ugh, unnerving. Yeah. Um, I, actually, hold on. Before you continue, everyone listening, I want you to go on YouTube right now. I want you to pause this podcast, which is unusual because usually podcasts don't tell you to pause the podcast. Here we are, a new paradigm in podcasting. Anyway, pause. Pause your streams, open up YouTube, type in the best of Cheezle with a Z, so G-E-A-Z-L-E-T, Weasel with a Z, um, and just watch it and be disturbed. Please, Lachlan, describe this disturbing content for so, everyone who doesn't do that. So now that you've watched that and returned from your therapy session... <laughs> um, <laughs> So um, yeah, so with we just as as we were talking about before with squash and stretch, you know, it's it's important to maintain the the physicality of the object to maintain its volume and proportions and have it move in such a way that a real object would move. And this was uh, not done with Cheezle T Weasel. He uh, 
as you can see, as you as you see how his body parts stretch in completely abnormal, arbitrary ways, and his proportions are all over the place. It's almost concerning how his neck stretches and how they use his neck. It's like it's definitely like if this was meant to be like sold to children. I don't. It's a horror film. It's a. It is a horror film uh, in a very I, large I, I, extent. I, I, I can't believe it was made in 2012. Like I, I like, it, it looks like a bunch of unfinished assets. I don't know if you guys got this as well, but whenever his neck stretched, I felt physical pain. <laughs> like your neck had like these like almost um, pieces of your spine like being added into yes. your neck. <laughs> it would be very painful. Yeah. Sometimes it's important for characters to have a skeleton. Yeah, I stick think, to it. Yeah, I think that's something I've heard before um, when you're drawing cartoons, and that's why a lot of um, it's kind of you shouldn't like if you want to draw cartoons, you shouldn't start by drawing kind of the simplified form. You should actually start with real figure drawing, drawing real people, and then um, learn how to abstract that to cartoons. and And part of that is um, every cartoon character should be able to contain a skeleton and um, move in a way that makes sense to a skeleton, um, even if the character you know is really exaggerated. Um, but I think, I feel like that applies here as well, is you have to be careful when using Squatch and Stretch that these characters could still, um, you know, have a skeleton and make, move in a way that makes sense, like in the physical world. Yeah, I think, uh, when I've heard about it, I hear about the term frame and it says, like, stick within their frame so that they know that it's believable <laughs> and any exaggeration for is- yeah. Yeah, it's just exaggerating that frame in a certain way. So, uh, for, for reference, for the technical people at home, um, so, like, a bounding box, mm-hmm. make sure they stick in their bounding box so they don't exceed their bounding box so the animation isn't unbelievable, right? Mm-hmm. So, if you draw a box around a person and it's all the possible places that they could be in a moment of time, like, this is the extent of their range of motion, and you want to extend it a little bit past that, I think... I think that should be okay, given what squash, uh, squash and stretch is. But at the same time, like you can't do it too far. You can't extend out of that range too far, or else it does just look terrible. Well, here's the thing. I feel like the bounding box might actually be squashing and stretching as well, and that needs to happen in a way that makes sense. Like The bounding box can't just like suddenly uh, become way larger. Sure, sure. I agree with that. I think that um, for slight movements, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely wouldn't just stick to a normal bounding box. But yes, for like movement where you're trying to convey motion and like intent emotion, you're trying to show speed. Yeah, for sure. That definitely stretches. Like for instance, if you become very thin because you're like traveling very quickly from one place to another and your body is sort of stretched out because it's conveying speed, you definitely wouldn't suddenly expand outwards uh, in terms of width. Right, like that, like unless you stop and you hit something and you're supposed to convey that like, oh, you, you hit your head on a wall and your body followed and now you're a pancake. Like that's, I get, okay, I guess I just proved myself wrong while talking, but you know, like the bounding box changed at that time. doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so I want to talk about my example. Uh, I chose yeah, how Kevin- selfish. Yeah. How, how selfish. How, we all had our time in the sun. See, the best for last. Except for me. Do not mess it up, Ken. Fuck. Don't choke, choke, choke. I always choke. Okay. okay. Um, so, I'm going to talk about Kill a Kill. Kill a Kill is another show by Studio Trigger. Studio Trigger is a Japanese animation studio. Uh, they are... 
basically the so if you're familiar with Gurren uh, Lagan, which is a show from 2007 uh, done by Studio Gainax, this is like the remnants of that studio. A portion of them created their own thing, Studio Trigger. And uh, as Sophie mentioned earlier, they love Western animation. Um, you know how there's like we lose people who love Japanese animation and they're Western. Guilty. It's uh, it's basically the same thing, but they're Westaboos. They love Western animation, so they take a lot of cues from it, which is kind of unusual in uh, anime. But in this case, it usually leads to such expressive emotion, and uh, it it conveys sort of. Motion, emotion, it, it just describes the scene so well in how they, they treat squash and stretch that it really just, I don't know, it's very pleasing to see. Is it mostly on the exaggeration or is it on how it's used? So what, what makes oh, it special? Uh, the combination. Um, the exaggeration is to the extreme. Um, so for an instance, like you, you boot up the first episode of Kill a Kill um, and you're in a classroom, and the teacher is talking about Adolf Hitler for some reason. Uh, but then it comes in that one of the student council members comes charging through the room. And as he does, his the top portion of his body grows so large in the frame that his presence becomes the main presence in the room. And the emotion that's supposed to be conveyed there is that he is socially very important. And compared to the teacher who shrinks, in a sense, and kind of scrambles away, this sort of large, like, just ever-growing person is definitely above him in the social ladder. But on top of that, um, they also use that motion to convey action and to really fill out their action scenes in a way that a lot of, a lot of animations uh, from the East don't typically follow with and don't typically use. Uh, so, for instance, uh, there's a fight later in the in the episode, near the end of the episode, where uh, the main character, Ryuko, is uh, fighting the head of the boxing club. And as she's fighting him, his motions are so over-exaggerated. His arms are moving, and they are extending to lengths that you wouldn't expect them to. But at the same time, you know that it's because he's just so fast that to show that he's that fast, they need to make sure that his arms just extended far enough that they would hit her, but quickly enough that it made sense that it would extend that far. Um, so I guess the combination of both speed and over-exaggeration for limb, and uh, as well as proportion showed that this sort of squash and stretch nature where he was like, bun like the punches were going out and then coming back to him. And that sort of like squash moment, like, do you guys know what I'm talking about? I, I started to ramble. Anyway, that sort of motion and repeated motion showed that he was incredibly fast, but at the same time had a long reach. But then also when she hits back, um, he squashes in such ways and stretches in such ways that you know that the force is impactful. You know that she is able to just absolutely decimate him, and she barely broke a sweat doing so. I think that I see what you mean. Like his kind of boxing glove almost curls around, stretches around yeah. her, and she doesn't yeah. squash or stretch at all. And I feel like I'm, I'm wondering, like kind of like sinking in my head, or I wonder if static things in squash and stretch animations, like things that just kind of hold their shape, if there's kind of significance to those. Mm -hmm. um, no, it, totally. Um, I think that they that in instances like that, it shows just as much as something that's squashing and stretching in the same scene. Um, for instance, if somebody is punching a wall and is doing it repeatedly, but the wall isn't breaking or, or moving at all, but they're they're contorting in such ways that they're they're showing that they are powerful and they are fast. 
it's showing that that wall is super powerful. It's providing meaning. It's providing context to the sense that this sort of object in the scene is stronger than this character that you know. I'm imagining a scene where, like, everything is squashing and stretching, and if it would just be, like, very, very chaotic, and if we would almost lose, we'd almost lose mm-hmm. kind of visual information from that. I feel like Adventure Time is kind of like that. Adventure Time is kind of like that. I, I feel like a lot of the old, like, black and white, Betty Boop and early yeah. was very much like that, where everything was moving rhythmically, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, exactly. But it also conveyed the emotion of both the environment and the time. With everything bouncing, it gave a certain air to it. And everybody was on cocaine. <laughs> yes, probably. But, but at the same time, it does give more weight to the static things because everything else is moving around it. Mm-hmm. And so you might focus on those more static things in the environment because of that. But it's a fair point uh, that the opposite works as well. A lot of the time, the, envi- the environment itself is static, acting as a stage, and the characters are dynamic, which draws your eye to them and makes them the focus of the scene. <laughs> That's true. It's finding... Uh, sorry. I just like I think finding, finding contrast. This is true kind of in comics, and I think animation is, you know, visually, how do you signal to the um, the viewer what they should be focusing on? Because I know, I know color is one of them. Like, you can make their colors more saturated or make sure that they have more contrast to the rest of the scene. But I'm wondering if there's ways that you can do it kind of in the animation and the movement to make people realize that's what kind of where their eyes should be drawn uh, during the scene. No, I just, I, I um, no, no, I, I think that it's, it's all of those elements tie into something greater. I feel like we'll probably touch on those elements later on as well. Uh, and I feel like they do um, convey at least partially to the sense of like, they, they, convey, they convey a small portion of squash and stretch to the overall sense of squash and stretch. For example, if you ever read Ball and it's squashing, and as it squashes, it gets a bit redder because like the stuff inside, like they, let's say it's a water balloon, mm-hmm. like the red liquid inside becomes more clear mm-hmm. because you're like, you're squashing that water balloon and so the red uh, color is surfacing mm-hmm. like color can definitely contribute to the overall animation uh, technique being used but I think it's highly dependent on how it's done um, so we've, had a, we've talked about how this is the first you know plus stretch is the first principle of animation which leads me to believe that it probably did exist kind of before these principles were established Cooper our historian do you know when squash and stretch was first used well so at the very beginning, what the animators did was they looked at 2D still animations to understand these things. And so uh, very early on, there's a famous uh, animation that really uh, describes squash and stretch, and that's the horse running. And so I don't know if you've seen this black and white horse running with, a, uh, I believe, a jockey on it. Uh, this was like the start of how people started thinking about squashing and stretching, how they thought about running. Uh, as well as some of the other principles. And so, like you mentioned before, these principles existed for a long time, and they were used in animation um, well before these were established, um, but they were just more standardized at a long time, around the time of uh, um, Disney um, and all of their illustrators and animators. Um, but yes, they all existed, and uh, it seemed like it, it started out of that 2D uh, mm-hmm. method. Of understandings uh, squash and stretch. That's cool, and that makes me think. You mentioned kind of a horse running. I feel like running is like just kind of like a 
infamous challenge for animation, right? Like human walking and running is like yeah. I would, like I, would, I would add to the, add that to the list of things that your brain knows is wrong if you get it slightly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we think like splash and stretch can kind of help make the running less uncanny or less stiff? I feel like like the stiffness of the running is normally the awkwardness. So I think it's when it's uh, when you're trying to be real, you have to nail it, otherwise you get into that uncanny valley. But if if there's a, an agreement between the the animation and the viewer that what they're seeing is a cartoon, it's a symbolic representation of something, you can suspend your disbelief and get away with things like that. Without you can get away with things not being not needing to be realistic or true to reality or true to yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Anime kind of exists in the nexus between those two worlds in the sense that, like, running in an anime is, like, such a such a fucking trial because half of it looks very realistic and the other half doesn't. Like the arms back kind of Naruto style running? Well, yeah, I mean, like, everybody, <laughs> I mean, everyone runs like that. <laughs> Marathon runners, college athletes, high school track stars, everybody runs with their arms back with a headband on. But that's not what we're debating. We're talking about that unrealistic walking one foot neck in front of the other with a steady pace without arms backwards sort of animation. So every time I think about a walking animation, it reminds me of SpongeBob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the, what was it, the Uncharted tapes, something? Does anyone remember? Oh, the Lost Episode. The Lost yeah. Episode, yes. And so I always remember uh, SpongeBob's different walks and how that really personified his personality and character. And some of, and it was weird because none of them felt off for mm. whatever reason, even though they were all exaggerated or some in some ways normal, but they never felt off. So why, why was it that SpongeBob seemed perfectly fine, but in other cases it's absolutely horrible? Does anyone have an idea of that? So I'm not familiar with what you're talking about, but I think it's also related to the character, right? So like we, we kind of touched on it earlier, but like SpongeBob is kind of a weird character design in the sense that he has very thin, dangly arms and legs, and so in uh, a square torso. And so when he walks, what we have come to expect is not a normal walk cycle, primarily because his legs do not conform to what we think of as legs. They're just simply appendages. It might be that they just really nailed the animation on it. Like, <laughs> it, might be. it might be. Was like, that the well, answer? No, 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 no. I don't think so. <laughs> it's I, it's I very true that if you applied those walk animations to Patrick or Squidward or any other character in SpongeBob, they wouldn't work. Oh, that's absolutely fair. That makes sense. Have you seen that? No. He is watching stretching, that's it's for sure. so well done. I feel like, honestly, SpongeBob's show isn't usually very kind of 3D, but this seems like more 3D. It really is. But I remember his, like, uh, take it around town, bring it around You're town. right. Yes, and so, like, I always thought that that wasn't... I wonder if they, like, put more intention with certain movements to kind of make it seem more, more 3D. I think a lot of it's in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he coils it sometimes, too. So we just watched the last episode of Spongebob walking in animation. Um, 
I think that part of the reason it works is, yeah, I agree, the face. The face does definitely contribute to it. His face contorts with all these different personalities, and so it, it matches the walk cycle. But at the same time, there are also things that we know. There are also things that we have seen in past animation. So, example, for example, when he's walking all crazy with his legs going clearly very forward in front of him and stretching to such an extent that they're just, like, arguably, like, as tall as he is in front of him, so, like, the length of his entire body in front of him, it reminds me of that sort of... And his arms are flailing in such a way where his fingers going upwards and downwards. It just reminds me of a 30s cartoon. It reminds me of the contortions that bodies back then, like, in the sort of rhythmic, as you mentioned earlier, animation one. And so I think that's part of the reason why it works. It's because it reminds us of that classic sort of look. And even, like, the, like the little contour of, like, his upper lip during that portion... Reminded me of like a 30s cartoon. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've been playing Cuphead. Cuphead. Fuck. That should have been my one of our examples. Cuphead is great. Cuphead is a lot of, has a shit ton of squash and stretch. It must be really hard, right, for a video game to, to animate. Like. Yeah, I mean, they spent they spent an extra year and a half animating it. And Microsoft was like, okay, sure. As long as it looks good. And they're like, it's going to look good. And then it looked good. Yeah, because that's all uh, and, hand-drawn. And they did it the classic way. Entire- in the entire video game. Part. I wonder if we could get them on. How does that even Kate? Can, can I feel like you probably have the most background here, maybe or maybe even Muffin, maybe any of you as well. How do you actually like apply hand drawn frames into a video game? Like, what's the- uh, typically the, like I'm sure what they did is they took the hand drawn frames and converted them to sprites, and then after you convert them to sprites, you create a sprite sheet, and those different sprite sheets go in different routes uh, based on the animation that you're connecting into. So typically, when you have like a video game and you have a character. Uh, in the engine, there will be some way to ingest sprite sheets and to uh, expose the various paths in those sprite sheets for particular animations. It is it is definitely a state machine, but in the sense of uh, the state machine goes into different routes for different animations. So you could be in mid-animation then go into a different state. So let's say you're running and then you jump. There might be a state machine that is from run to jump. And so you need to make those connections wisely and you need to make sure that they flow correctly because if you're running and then you suddenly jump and the day don't connect... That is my biggest pet peeve in video games, where the animations don't connect properly. So, so in games, there is a concept known as game feel, also known as juice. Is this like mouth feel? It, it, is, it is something you can feel when playing a game, when, for whatever reason, you're playing a game and the controls just feel good and everything feels fluent, and things feel satisfying when they happen. Um, and there's a good talk called Juice It or Lose It, where they describe the concept of juice. And this concept of juice, making a juicy game, is basically different applications of squash and, squash and stretch. Um, and the example that they use is taking a, a, an Arkanoid clone and adding some some squash and stretch when, when you move the paddle around based on the speed and when the ball bounces off the paddle and hits some other things. And you can it's it's a great example of how just adding sprinkling a bit of squash and stretch makes things just feel so much better. And all the great games, all the games you can think of that feel really good probably have an element of this. You consider Super Meat Boy, animated by the the amazing Edmund McMillan. You can see in the in Meat Boy's animations when he jumps and he lands, the the squash and stretch is just just very right. 
Um, League of Legends is also great with this. Um, they make liberal use of smear frames, and it, if you slow it down and actually look at the animations, it looks very much like old Looney Tunes. Um, another example of, of just sprinkling some squash and stretch in is good mobile apps will always have, like, when you interact with objects in good mobile apps, usually they'll have an element of squishiness or material-appropriate squashiness that just makes them feel that much better and makes the app seem a little bit better or fun to use. Actually, I think you're right. Now that I imagine, a lot of like the Google apps, like they're kind of different loading dials. I feel like mm-hmm. they're kind of squashy and stretchy. Have you guys noticed that? Yeah. And those always yeah. do feel kind of like viscerally satisfying. Yeah. So when can't you use squash and stretch? Good question, Ken. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's, there's, there's many cases where you cannot use squash and stretch. So for instance, um, back, back in the day, if you watch old Newgrounds animations, you'll notice that a lot of those don't have squash and stretch because one of the, one of the main ways of animating was to do what's called tweening of objects where you simply move them from one location to another. And the software to do that made things pretty tricky. Um, so often that was not done. Um, so it's more of an engine constraint. Well, it's partially because um, you would have two frames and you would have the software um, or the engine interpolate between them. And because conservation of volume is so important in squash and stretch, I think sometimes the interpolation maybe wouldn't do that correctly, right? It was, yeah, it was very difficult to get it correctly. And the really the only way to do it in, in 2D animation, you can, you can either... These days, you can probably script it and automate it to an extent using Bones and IK, but it usually looks robotic or not quite correct. So the re- really the only way to do it correctly is to animate frame by frame, which is a very time-consuming process. Mm-hmm. And it requires a lot of good artists and animators, such as those in the industry right now. Mm. I don't know why I mentioned that last bit, but point B... Like it takes them hours to create a good animation. Yeah, and you can see you can see this reflected in um, cartoons that may not have the best budget, like old Scooby Doo and old or old Scooby Doo or anime. A lot of the time, where a lot of it is a still frame with characters' mouths moving, and these techniques used very sparingly. Seems like like. You mentioned squash and stretch is very expensive and time-consuming, and that's just not always plausible, right, due to resources. But I'm just wondering, like, what what can animators do other than squash and stretch to add personality and movement to their animation without squash and stretch? Is that a topic for another day? Sounds like a topic for another day, Sophie. Ooh, ooh, hard cutoff, Sophie. So sorry. It looks like we're at the end. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. Squash and stretch is such an important principle of animation, and it's really great learning about it, learning about its history. Um, Prior to this, I honestly didn't know half of what the others here had brought up, and I think that it's important to understand, because as we continue going through the principles of animation and beyond, knowing the fundamentals will be pivotal, because I'm 100% sure that it all works off of each other. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Uh, You all have a great night or day or morning, whatever you're listening. 
And be sure to uh, look forward to our next episode, which will be going on the principle of and anticipation. Yeah, Patient. We'll, we'll work on that. Anticipation. Yeah.